there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you press play. And you will be too when you hear more about my next guest. If you're interested in the startup world and entrepreneurship or the world of venture capital, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has worked at the intersection of VC and entrepreneurship for more than 30 years. But before I introduce you to Guy Craig Vachon, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that gives you an overview of all the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, scroll down to see all the other episodes we've got for you in the career category that is most relevant for your personal interests. That's right. They're all organized by profession. And now, my friends, it is that time. So please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Guy Craig Vachon, the founder, director, and in his own words, the chief dog poop scooper of Chowdahead Growth, the Chowdahead Growth Fund. For the last dozen years, Craig has been making seed or angel investments in founders of startup companies that are attempting to make the world a better place profitably. Craig also describes himself as the son of two hardworking immigrants to the U.S. who wrote his first business plan when he was 12 years old and sold his first real business to a Japanese advertising firm when he was 25 years old. Craig has lived all over the world in places like Japan, Shenzhen, Hangzhou, as well as in Hong Kong. By the way, those are now all parts of China. And in India, Taipei, London, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Craig, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready, and I have a big mug of steaming Pete's Dark Roast. I'm ready. Delicious. And I have to ask you, where in the world, Waldo, are you joining us from today? Lovely Santa Cruz, California. The waves are crashing. The surfers are out. There's nice sunlight. The little bit of the fires, uh, the smoke is, is just gently clearing, but it's a gorgeous day here. Oh, yes. I'm glad to hear the, the smoke is clearing. Craig, I would like to start by telling you just how much I love the name of your company, Chowdahead Growth. And for those Java junkies who may not be from New England or Massachusetts, the term Chowdahead means that person isn't exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. Is that right? Is that a fair assessment, Craig? <laughs> yeah, it's our local word of endearment for a knucklehead. It's kind of a gentle put down that most New Englanders kind of embrace. Yeah. And whatever it is, that is clearly not 
a good descriptor of you, Craig, or the companies <laughs> you invest in. I am guessing it is just your kind of cheeky way of letting us know that the head of Chow to Head likes to have fun and likes yeah. to laugh. Which exactly. is so wonderful because honestly, laughter is the elixir of life. Absolutely. My mom, who is, you know, my hero in life, told us uh, as, as children and as adults that learning and laughter were the only two worthy pursuits in life. And when you really sort of cut everything down and focus on what's really important, those two things absolutely stand out. I might add a third later after some self-actualization of service to others. But I think really learning and laughter make the world go round. And it's what motivates me. My mom was, was absolutely right about so many things. And it's fun to laugh at oneself. It is. And those are just a beautiful way of kind of framing your path through life. I think there's also in picking the Chowderhead Growth Fund, I think there's an opportunity to be a little bit different in Silicon Valley. If you think about the biggest venture capital firms in the world, they're, you know, their names Sequoia and Atlas and A to Z, Andreessen Horowitz, right? They're this, you know, we're huge and we're so smart and we're so wonderful about and and I, I wanted to take an opposite approach. I wanted to sort of say, I'm just like you and you know, I'm not perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. I will continue to do so. And Chowderhead just kind of lowers some of the barriers, makes it a little bit more approachable, makes the the process when a, a founder is looking for someone to help them grow their business, they want somebody that they can talk to. Because if you have to reach out to someone from Atlas, you know, the, <laughs> there's a sort of intimidation factor. If you're going to go talk to somebody at Chowderhead, it's kind of like, ah, let's go buy this guy a beer and we'll, you know, knock one back and we'll talk about, you know, whether or not the Red Sox look good for next year or not. Yeah. And I'm guessing they do. <laughs> of course they do. Of course of they course. do. So, Craig, let's talk about some of the chowder heads that you have invested mm -hmm. in over the years. Companies like Anchor Free. What yeah. made Anchor Free jump out at you a number of years ago when they first came across your desk? Anchor Free is one of those sort of perfect storm little companies. And today it's not so little. Anchor Free as mission is to bring the internet, an unfettered internet, an uncentered internet to the world. And it was meeting them about 12 or 13 years ago. The two founders were both Russian immigrants to the US and we met in their dorm room. And they said something so very important to me. And they said, someday the internet is going to require privacy. Wow. And I thought, wow, that's profound. That's really forward thinking because at the time, you know, Google was just starting to get its footing. And there, it was clear that we were at Google, at lots of these companies, we were the product. We were selling ourselves when we were using these free internet tools. And the thought of privacy being important was something, especially when you consider things like issues of your family, your health, your wealth, those things you do want to have some control over. You may not have anything to hide, but you do have some things you want to protect. And so when I heard their pitch, it fit exactly with the corporate Chowderhead mission. And the mission of Chowderhead is to focus on finding things 
that affect a billion people or more finding things that scale really well. You want to build something once and sell it a billion times. And thirdly, you want to make the world a better place. And I know that's kind of Silicon Valley sillyism, but some of us actually believe that can be done. And I know if you watch the, I haven't yet, but there's a show called Silicon Valley on, on Netflix or something like that. They make fun of us silly Silicon Valley folks trying to make the world a better place. But the reality is there are a lot of us that are truly looking at this as an opportunity to use our resources, technology, financial, talent, to figure out ways in which to better the world. Not all of us are here making millions of dollars selling virtual cows. There is a portion of our Silicon Valley, whether it's uh, gaming companies or the like, that are making things of dubious value. But I do think Chowderhead and our first investment in Anchor Free was one where it was demonstrably different. Today, six of the top 20 companies by enterprise value worldwide, this includes Google or Alphabet and Facebook and Tencent and Badu, these companies are huge on the worldwide markets, predominantly because they sell your privacy. They mine the attributes of you and sell those attributes to advertisers. And they do a really good job at it. If you ever want to scare yourself, you know, do a google.com backslash dashboard and look at all the things that Google knows about you. It's remarkable, right? Things that you would be uncomfortable with, like whether or not your children are sexually aware. And so there are dangers, I'll call them dangers, but maybe some of them are just inconveniences of sharing all of this data for the free use of search engines and social media. And so what we wanted to do with Anchor Free was to build a foil to that, to build an alternative where you as an individual could turn on privacy when and if you desired. And this became like a really important feature for people around the world. We knew we had hit upon something great in February of 2011, when during the first Arab Spring marches, we saw protesters with a sign marching down the street that says, use Hotspot Shield, which is Anchor Free's main product. Use Hotspot Shield in order to get to Facebook and Twitter so we can organize. Oh my gosh. Wow. Right? So here we were showing up in newspaper photographs of people marching down the street saying, hey, our government is trying to censor our ability to organize. And we were the foil to that. We were the alternatives. Use this tool to get to Facebook, to get to Twitter, to get to these other tools so that you can participate in this movement. So, Craig, let me ask you, for one anchor free, how many duds have there <laughs> been in Chowdahead? Probably at least one to two duds per anchor freeze. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. A lot of the way you take the duds out of the equation is you actually work with the founders before making the investment. You sit with them and you find out whether or not they're adaptable, whether they're not they're resilient, whether or not they're willing to take advice. Those that don't act resilient, those that don't take advice, those that 
aren't adaptable, tend not to get funded by Chowderhead. I also noticed on your resume that you are listed as the acting chief financial officer, at least you were until October, the corporate development, business development, and HR at And I make the coffee and I sweep up after work. (laughs) I mean, that's what it takes to make some of these companies work. Then you put those hats on. And to your audience, I think that's like the greatest bit of advice that one can offer is be the person that raises their hand and says, well, if nobody's doing that, then then I guess I will. So play that out for me. For our young listeners who may want to come to you one day, Craig, to get seed funding for their startups, or frankly, may want to become venture capitalists. Sure. Should they position themselves? How should they be building their skills right now in order to get the traction they need with you? I don't think there is a prescribed recipe to falling into this career. I do think that being intellectually curious, loving to learn, because I mean, ultimately, the reason I became a venture capitalist was I got to learn something new every day. I would be approached by someone who said, I want to fix this problem. I could look them in the eye and say, the way that you were going to fix this problem is to go research this. And I'm going to stand by shoulder to shoulder with you to go research this and learn something new. Is this problem big enough? Can you fix it by building something once and selling it a billion times? Is the market really going to help? Or have you thought three generations from now and figured out whether or not, much like Google and Facebook, that privacy and persuasion can become a weapon like we've seen in the 2016 presidential elections? Yeah. So going back, I just want to give you a gentle pushback that it is not possible to prescribe how to do it. I don't disagree with you necessarily, but I do think there are some foundational skills that you clearly honed during the first 20 years of your professional life that you are building on now and that you are drawing on. You're correct. Okay. So what are those foundational skills that young Java junkies can be honing right now? First and foremost, be curious and ask the right question. One of your previous guests, Peter Loge, and I were debate partners in college. And I think, you know, learning the Socratic method, the ability to ask the right question in any environment adds to people's knowledge. And when you add to people's knowledge, you move yourself ahead a step. So asking the right questions, being iconoclastic, being the ability to sort of stare down a sacred cow and say, that may not be an absolute, that may not be something that lives forever, is really important. A lot of the things that I've been lucky enough to succeed in have been because you look at things like Google and Facebook selling privacy, their users' privacy, and saying there is an alternative to this. And asking the questions, would people actually pay money to be private? Most won't. But can you make a living if 20% of the people who use Google or use Facebook are willing to pay you to remain private? The answer, of course, is yes. And so at its core, being curious, asking the right questions, and honing your skills on asking the right questions. Asking questions that aren't just to fill the time, but instead to fill knowledge, to garner better 
answers and better results is really meaningful. Let me add one thing to that and tell me if you disagree. I would also add that find what you're interested in and what you're good at and go deep. Yes, and go wide. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that, you know, I graduated from Emerson College, both undergrad and grad degrees, and I had a rhetoric background, the art of persuasion. And I had no technology background. I'm not sure I ever had a math class, which is funny because now I, I often take the role of CFO. I'm often in deep technical discussions about how we change the human machine interface. And I think what you need to do is whatever environment you're in is to become an expert in that environment, but also look to the edges of where you can expand the organization's effort. Being able to, when I first started in the cellular phone industry, we had a, a thousand customer party. That's how nascent the whole cellular, the U.S. cellular market was when I first started. And I remember postulating with some of my coworkers that information, communication, and entertainment were going to entangle. And this was years before we had a formal internet. But we all inherently knew that if you had this broad pipe and it was going to be used to share information, that people were naturally going to bring to that sharing a desire to be entertained, to gain knowledge, to learn, and to create content themselves. And so that's one of the reasons that cellular sort of took today, we use our cellular phone almost as we envisioned using laptops 10 years ago. Today, it is our method for interacting with other humans, our method for interacting with how we learn. It is the way that we share and communicate, but it's no longer just something that we use our voice to communicate with someone else. And I'll never forget back when AT&T decided it wasn't going to go into the cellular business. They hired McKenzie and McKenzie was charged with creating how a report on how big the cellular market was going to get. And McKenzie famously came back and said, we don't think their cellular phones are going to take off. We don't think that there's a real need for it. There'll be tens of thousands of cellular phones, much like an infamous report of years prior where PCs were shed because there was someone famous who said there will be no more than two dozen of these personal computers in the world. Nobody will be able to afford them. Nobody will be able to use them. They're too complex, too crazy. This is such a small niche. Cellular phones went through that same thing. And I think being able to go deep and broad where you can add value is really important. And I think that's, a, that's one of those key attributes is not only being able to ask the right questions, but asking questions that allow you to add value to the discussion. So here's a question for you, Craig. You mentioned your time as an undergraduate, and you also got basically a back-to-back -back BS and Master's of Science in business communications, and you went to yep. Emerson College. What yep. did you think you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated with your master's in 87? And how did you get your first job? And what did you do? <laughs> I had no clue what I was going to do. I knew that I liked the art of persuasion. I knew that academia was intriguing, but not necessarily what I wanted to do solely. And much like my career arc 
if you will. I landed upon a lucky situation where someone said they had an extra $20,000. And since I had a fancy degree in persuasion, could I help them come up with some advertising or marketing that would make their retail store more popular. And so that's how I started my very first business. I didn't come out of college with a job. I came out of college and created a job. I took teaching roles in the local Boston area simply to put groceries on the table for dinner because, you know, starting your own business, you're, you're doing so with your own money, with your own resources, with your own talent. And so it um, quickly became evident that I was going to start my own business. I was going to need to find ways to sort of supplement the income if I was going to be able to survive. And so my first job was one that I created for myself. It was a small marketing and advertising company called Communique. I started it in the Boston region. I used a lot of friends from Cape Cod who were in semi-retirement, who had great contacts and had been there and done that in the advertising world and had kind of, they wanted to keep maybe four to eight hours of work a week in on their schedules to keep them sort of intellectually curious. But we started that business and landed customers like Ben and Jerry's and Legal Seafood and, and a few of the other Boston-specific or New England-specific companies, some of the banks and the like, simply because we were willing to do just about anything. We were willing to be very creative in order to help build their businesses. And since we were the new kids on the block, we worked for cheap, we worked hard, and we showed our results. And that was the business that you sold at age 25 to a Japanese yeah. advertising firm. To uh, Dentsu, which at the time was the world's largest advertising agency. They were intrigued that as part of our mantra of not only having some really interesting clients, we also really spent a lot of time focusing on how to demonstrate the results of what our advertising was or advertising or marketing efforts were doing. We tried to actually show in rudimentary ways a return on investment in advertising. And Dentsu was wildly intrigued with that. They loved sort of our brand name customer base, but more than anything else, they were intrigued on the attempt we were making to show a return on investment or payback on advertising dollars invested. And so as part of that deal with Dentsu, explain how you ended up in Japan as an internal business consultant working for the Sony Corporation. Yeah, another sort of bit of kismet or, or good luck. I landed in Tokyo. I spoke none of the language. I had never tried sushi in my life. A very funny story of me picking up my first breakfast, picking up a mound of ginger and stuffing it in my face <laughs> because it looked like it was the least objectionable form of food on the table. And, you know, going into the sweats. and It could have been the wasabi that you put in your mouth. It so could probably have been worse. Better. <laughs> yeah, but to this day, the smell of ginger uh, is, is one that still makes me a little queasy. I had a good fortune of walking into Dentsu. They were really interested in this sort of marketing audit approach of being able to show ROI and payback. And they introduced me to Morita-san. Uh, Akio Morita was the chairman of Sony Corp. And they approached Morita-san with the concept of, wouldn't it be interesting if Sony Corp quantified their marketing investment. And Morita-san turned around and said, yeah, I want this guy to come join my team and build this for Sony. And so my very first real job, I suppose, 
that wasn't one that I created was working. I think I spent a total of two days at Dentsu and then the rest of the time working with Sony, helping them build this platform, this, this tool that allowed Sony Corp to look at how much dollars or yen they were spending on any given effort and turn around and show what the result of that marketing investment was. So we did this press release and it turned out to earn us this many column inches of newspaper and magazine articles. And if we bought that column inch, it would cost us this. And so now we have a quantifiable way in which to show the result of our investment. You're talking about quantifiable numbers. And you were a communications guy, undergrad, and with your master's. It was the identification of the problem, though. The problem as a marketing person in the 80s was that it was kind of this like feel good industry where you didn't have to sort of show your worth. You didn't have to have great results because you went to Cannes and you won these awards, but the awards were meaningless, right? <laughs> the advertising industry is, is quick to brag about awards and not quick to talk about the rewards of making these investments. And I felt like that was a problem that could be fixed. And so I delved deeply into, you know, the local Shinjuku library where I could find some English books on accounting. And because this is pre-internet. And so I literally went to learn how to become an accountant in a library where I didn't speak the language, but was able to find some resources and apply some of that knowledge to solve a big problem that a lot of people acknowledged having, but nobody sort of decided on putting a stake in the ground. I look back on some of those early efforts and I kind of giggle because they were very rudimentary and made huge assumptions that we wouldn't make today. But at the time, it was the only person at Sony Corp to make some of these assumptions, put a stake in the ground and say, this information we're garnering is better than no information. Absolutely. And what you showed, Craig, is how scrappy you are. So I want to turn the clock forward to 1992. It was five years after you got your master's and you went to work for Macaw Cellular as director of new business development slash marketing and sales. On your resume, you say (laughs) that it was there you learned the utmost importance of hiring and developing exceptional teams, shared values among the team, and great communication. And you say, that the sale of Macaw to AT&T in 1995 for $24 billion was absolutely foundational to every role that followed. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by foundational and what was it that you learned? First and foremost, I learned that teams make up a company, that the best idea, the best technology, the best product are nothing without the team to support it. Macaw was a gentleman by the name of Craig Macaw. And Craig was an enormous visionary, but was self-actualized enough to know he wasn't a great manager. But he put people around him to be great managers. And I was lucky enough to be young and stupid and single. And he needed lieutenants like myself to go be problem solvers. And literally in in those years that I was with Craig, I was in 10 different cities where I would get a phone call from someone said, hey, how about going to Hong Kong? And I would plan a trip for seven days and end up spending seven months. (laughs) 
these were days where the cellular industry that we use today around the world for our basic needs, and in many instances, we consider it infrastructure like water or power, right? Today, that cellular industry is, is well understood. We all know what it brings to us. But in those days, rich guys and Ferraris had one installed in their car and they didn't know how to use it. And so what our job was, was to find really great people who shared similar values. And these were values that Craig and his leadership team put forth to our entire organization. And they became sort of a shorthand of how we made decisions in the company. So goal and value number one was hire, develop and retain great people. There were 10 goals and values of Macaw Cellular. The first one was about team. And we, over time, started to use these goals and values. We were all young and we were all stupid and we didn't know much and we were making it up as we were going along. But what we, we had to rely upon was each of these 10 goals and values. And what is remarkable is they gave you such a direction that when decisions were made, and even if they were the wrong decision, one of the goals and values, number eight, was you know, you're going to make mistakes. Learn from those mistakes so that we don't make that same mistake the next time. And so literally, we would use these goals and values as shorthand in discussions. For example, taking into account goal and value number three and how it impacts number eight. Should we do this or this moving forward? And everybody would understand that language because these were shared goals and values and people lived and died by them in this organization. And what that really, why I say it became foundational to me was having the right team and having the right culture on the right team. Culture doesn't mean that everybody gets along. Culture means that you understand where you're going, you have a common language, and you have the ability to move the ball forward yourself or with your teammates. That cultural understanding at Macaw was remarkable. And that company grew from when we first joined a thousand customers to when we left, you know, selling for $24 billion to become what is today the preponderance of AT&T. I think I skipped a question, Craig. How did you move from Sony to Macaw? <laughs> Another one of those really sort of lucky circumstances where one of my college friends suggested that I go and listen to this gentleman named Craig McCaw and his vision for the future. And so I went to this 15-person sort of, it wasn't a lecture, but it was kind of a discussion about where we thought telecommunications was going to go. I was intrigued because Craig had this grand vision. I stayed and listened to this discussion. Craig is not the best speaker. And I thought at the time I could really help Craig and his team create some good positioning for this company. I could really help fill some of these gaps. And so I approached Craig. He had a job for me. The very first one was sort of a marketing role. And later, as I mentioned earlier, I was one of these lieutenants that anytime there was a brush fire, I was sent to go fix a problem. If there was churn in Las Vegas that was not under control, I'd go fix that problem and spend six for 12 months there, or we needed to bring the cookbook to Hong Kong or India, I would go do that under the direction of, of the leadership team. And my ability to say yes to a lot of these things, I think also I credit my mother's advice, but also just one of the reasons I've been so lucky is being lucky sometimes means you say yes, because if you say no, you're never going to get that luck, that chance. 
And oh, so, I so agree with you. Isn't that one of those really interesting things? Sometimes you have to raise your hand for the really ugly job and say, all right, nobody wants to make this presentation. I'm going to make it because I want to have an ability to influence this process. And if I'm making the presentation, I'm going to have the ultimate influence. So instead of like going out for beers with my friends afterwards, I was stuck in an office cranking out these presentations that nobody else wanted to do. But I knew I was going to have oversized influence when that decision was made. And that to me was intriguing and really alluring. Absolutely a thousand percent. You seem to embody, Craig, a spirit of adventure and a willingness and a positive attitude, which are some of the most remarkable assets and characteristics that any young person can have, let alone someone who's our age, right? You got to have that can-do attitude and you have to be willing to do the shit work. Exactly. It it can't just be about give me the glory job. No, you're never going to get the glory. I'm absolutely with you. You're never going to get the glory jobs until you do the shit jobs really well. And that's when you'll become noticed in the organization. You'll have a chance to influence your organization, which in some instances you'll do well, in some instances you'll fail miserably, but at least it's your decision. It's your influence. And I think You know, being able to say yes, when lots of people, there were a lot of Christmases and Thanksgivings and and things that I missed because someone said, hey, you know what? India doesn't, China doesn't recognize this holiday and they want a meeting on the day after Christmas. That means you're on a plane. Are you okay with this? And the answer is, I'm okay with this. I will find a way to make it up to my family and my, my friends, but I'm going to go be the guy that can be relied upon, the guy or gal to be relied upon so that the next time something important comes up, the first person my boss thinks of is me. Craig, for our young listeners, our young Java junkies who may still be in school right now, what are the takeaways, the lessons that you hope that they glean right now from your professional journey. And we should add, since we don't have time to touch on every job that you've had over the last 30 years, we can just fast forward and say you spent a huge amount of your career in telecommunications and in tech. I think the lessons that I would hope to impart is go find the things that you love. And if you don't know what those are, that's okay. I didn't know that I loved technology in college. I didn't know that I loved science in college. I don't think I took any of these classes. I'd be remiss if I were to say I had it all figured out in college. I didn't, but I had a willingness to go and learn. I had a curiosity that drove that learning. I liked to laugh at myself, even if I make mistakes, in the sense that there are times when I've made really silly mistakes, but I don't make the same mistake twice very often. And so my advice is probably go learn what it is that you love. Go be ultra curious about it and then go see how well you work in that environment. And don't be afraid. Don't be fearful of making mistakes or making wrong turns because some of the best wrong turns I've ever done have been the stepping stone or the jumping off point for the next really exciting opportunity. Failure is inevitable. Embrace it, learn from it, move on. I want to talk with you about the failures and about the wrong turns, or at least just one of them, Craig, because Mm -hmm. one of the things that I try to do in every Time for Coffee interview is 
to model for our young listeners the fact that even incredibly successful people like Guy Craig Vachon stumbled, struggled, fell down, picked yourself up and started again. Could you share one gem with us? Yeah, of I got a gem. A real rough patch. And most importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Sure. When I left AT&T, Craig McCaw moved on to Nextel and bought a big portion of another cellular carrier called Nextel. And I became one of the executives in Asia Pacific for growing those three or four markets. It became really evident really quickly. This was the second time I was living in Japan that we were undercapitalized. We didn't have enough money to compete. We were competing against a company in Tokyo called Docomo. Docomo had 60,000 cell sites in the Tokyo metropolitan district, and we had 12. And cell sites are really expensive, especially in, you know, uh, real estate driven markets like Tokyo. And so I knew we just weren't going to be successful. And so I pulled this monster fuck up. I decided I was going to go learn how to do fundraising. I was going to sit with some really smart people, raise a bunch of money, in this instance, $250 million, and go and buy these properties from Nextel and Craig McCaw. And I sat with George Soros and earned his promise to invest. And I sat with Prudential Asset Management Asia and earned their promise to invest and got back and met with the senior leadership of Nextel. And the first words out of their mouth were, you're fired. Oh, my God. They saw it as sort of the ultimate trader move that I would go outside of the organization to try to find a solution. Even though my proposal was that they would continue to go along and I would fund these businesses and they would eventually be successful, they saw it as, no, you're diminishing our ownership. We can raise this money ourselves. And why would you put us in this type of situation? And so it was one of those monstrous, you know, I remember that tearful discussion with my parents saying, I just screwed the pooch majorly. I thought I was this hero coming in with $250 million with the promised investment. And instead, the first words are, hand us your badge, you're fired. And the short story here is I learned it wasn't really that hard to earn investment if you knew what drove the investors. And so I pivoted at that moment and said, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley where there's a lot of really smart entrepreneurs who want to earn investment to grow their companies because I now know how to do this. That was the move into the VC world? Exactly. It was actually the move into the entrepreneur side, sort of pre-making my own investments, but going to Silicon Valley, becoming a senior executive or CEO at some of these companies, getting them resourced or invested in so that they could go and grow their businesses to eventually reward the investors who had put their investments to work with me. And so suddenly I became a rare commodity in Silicon Valley, which is kind of a funny thing because talk about failures. I've pitched about 1,450 times in front of venture capitalists and been successful exactly 27 times. And if this was Mookie Betts at the Red Sox, I probably would be sitting on the bench if that was hits instead of investments. But in the investment world, I'm considered fairly knowledgeable and skilled in this particular challenge. 
Thank you and so much for sharing that. Was there something else you wanted to add there? I think that it's just an opportunity if I were to talk to my 22-year-old or 25-year-old self, it's the opportunity to realize that even when you screw up, sometimes the learning that is gained in that screw up can be so valuable and that to leverage that learning may in fact be your next career. Well, you just teed up the final time for coffee question, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) which is, if you could go back to Emerson and be a 22-year-old all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself while you were still at Emerson? I think the advice would be to gain comfort in who you are and to, if you feel naturally to be inquisitive, to allow that to grow, allow that to become a part of who you are. If you, one of the things that I'm, deep disclosure here, I'm not an extrovert. I play one in the movie that I call life. I'm an introvert. I'm much more comfortable with a good novel in my hand, sitting on the beach with my big two goofy dogs. But occasionally I have to go get comfort in being an extrovert and asking people for advice or partnerships or investment. And I think the advice I'd want to give my 22-year-old Emerson self is be comfortable in who you are. It's not a bad thing to be an extrovert. It's not a bad thing to be an introvert, but know when to use those attributes to better the situation. Well, Craig, I have to say, I think you have had just an extraordinary career and you've been so incredibly generous with your lessons learned, your highs and your lows. And I wish you continued success with Chow ahead and all of the investments that you make in the years to come that I know are helping to make our world a better place. Craig, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You're welcome. Remember, we're all nothing but knuckleheads or chowderheads, and we all have the ability to make the world a better place. So let's try. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 